What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. This is Rob Weber with the Kentucky Academy of Science. There's a lot going on at the state capitol these days. This is definitely the busy time of year for the Kentucky General Assembly. Among the noteworthy recent happenings in the capitol, the deadlines to file bills in the House and Senate have passed. That means we now have a pretty clear view of all the issues lawmakers are going to grapple with this year. More than 1,100 bills have been proposed. That's quite a bit more than usual, but many big issues, and right there at the top of the list are matters dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Lawmakers continue to roll back some of the requirements on precautions related to COVID-19, including issues dealing with face masks at schools. Currently, school boards can make decisions on mask requirements in local schools, but under legislation approved by the House of Representatives, parents would be able to opt their children out of any mask requirements in schools. This legislation, House Bill 51, now goes to the Senate for its consideration. Another COVID bill that has moved forward in the House of Representatives would prohibit government entities and public universities from requiring employees or students to disclose whether or not they've been vaccinated against COVID-19, even if they work with at-risk populations, and even if a new, more dangerous variant of COVID-19 surfaces. This legislation, House Bill 28, passed the House 71 to 22 on March the 11th, and it now goes to the Senate for consideration. There was much attention recently on a proposal to establish a medicinal cannabis program in Kentucky. The sponsor of this legislation, Representative Jason Nemus of Louisville, says this 138-page bill was carefully drafted so that medicinal cannabis could be used by people who it would help the most with medical conditions and is not being crafted with a wink and a nod towards recreational cannabis use. House Bill 136 specifies the conditions for which medicinal cannabis could be used. Those conditions include any form of cancer regardless of stage, chronic severe debilitating pain, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, nausea or vomiting. The bill now goes to the House, where it has passed previously and is expected to do so again, according to the sponsor. The Senate side of the General Assembly is where this proposal has hit some resistance in the past, but there are signs that that resistance may be lessening now, especially with the recent announcement that the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, Senator Whitney Westerfield, now supports this legislation. Another piece of legislation on medicinal cannabis proposes establishing a Center for Cannabis Research at the University of Kentucky to study the use of cannabis for medical conditions. This legislation, House Bill 604, would establish the center to conduct and fund research related to cannabis, including pharmaceutical development and research on the efficacies of medicinal cannabis, According to the legislation, the mission of the center would include conducting and funding research related to medicinal cannabis, 
including pharmaceutical development and research on the efficacies of medicinal cannabis. The center would also review current and future cannabis research literature, clinical studies, and clinical trials. House Bill 604 was approved by the House Health and Family Services Committee on March 10th and now goes to the full House. The future of Kentucky's electric vehicle infrastructure was also the subject of attention recently. On March the 9th, the Senate Transportation Committee passed legislation that would require the state's transportation cabinet to develop an electric vehicle infrastructure plan. The sponsor of Senate Bill 347, Senator Jimmy Higdon of Lebanon, says that Kentucky is getting $10 million for electric vehicle infrastructure from the Federal Infrastructure Act, and he wants Kentucky to be ready. The bill also calls upon officials to look into the feasibility of charging stations at the state's rest areas if a federal prohibition on that is lifted. There was action this week on lawmakers' number one constitutional duty, and that is creating a state budget. A version of the state budget had already been approved by the House of Representatives, but now it's the Senate's turn to show its preferred plan for the next two years of state spending. The state currently has record surpluses, so the spending plan does propose spending increases in many areas, most notably for state employee raises. These pay raises that are proposed would average out to 10% increases across the entire state workforce. The spending plan does leave more than a billion dollars unspent. This is even after you take into account that the Senate wants to give a tax rebate to Kentuckians, a $500 rebate for individuals or $1,000 per household, The House, meanwhile, has proposed a plan to give an income tax cut with a move towards eventually phasing out the income tax entirely. So, can the state afford both the Senate plan and the House plan? We will find out, but certainly at this point, people are considering whether or not there's going to be budget squeezes in the future if the state loses one of its largest revenue sources in the income tax. Now that the House and Senate have each passed their own preferred versions of a state budget, members of both chambers will come together in a conference committee and they'll negotiate. And if history is any guide, they will produce a budget that will meet both chambers' approval probably right before a veto recess is scheduled to begin at the end of this month. If you have feedback to share with lawmakers on any of the issues under consideration, one easy way to do that is to call the General Assembly's toll-free message line. If you call that line and leave a message, it'll be delivered to the lawmaker or lawmakers of your choice. If you're not sure who represents you, the person who answers the phone on the message line will help you find out. You can have your message delivered specifically to your representative and senator, or to all members of a committee, or all members of the House or Senate, or the entire membership of the General Assembly. You can call this message line at 1-800-372-7181. Again, that's 1-800-372-7181. We're going to see action continue to pick up in Frankfurt throughout this month, so please follow the issues and make your voice heard. Scott here. There has been a bit of news about the new James Webb Space Telescope, which is a big deal for astronomers, but may need a bit of context for folks who hear the name but may not know what it may help do. 
So I thought it would provide a bit of context to get everyone up to speed and perhaps up to excitement about this latest edition of NASA's collection of space telescopes. Pretty much everyone is familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope. It operates primarily in visible wavelengths, though some of its detectors can work in the near-infrared and near-ultraviolet as needed. Though Hubble is the best known of NASA's initial collection of space telescopes, collectively referred to as the Great Observatories, there were initially four that spanned different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum to get information about objects across those wavelength bands, much of which does not penetrate Earth's atmosphere. Collectively, these four telescopes have changed much of our understanding of the universe and the objects that make it up. The other three scopes were Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, which followed Hubble into space and operated from 1991 to 2000, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, launched in 1999 and is still in operation, and the final element, the Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope, was launched in 2003 and was decommissioned in 2020. Whether observing the same object at the same time or independent objects, the data collected from these telescopes is still leading to discoveries today. Which brings us to the Webb Space Telescope. If one were to highlight the timeline of Webb, there are more than a few high points that may help with this process. The former recommendations were made to NASA to develop what would become the James Webb Telescope in 1996. Though initial committee work to decide what the telescope would do and how it would do it started back in 1989. The intent of this telescope was to operate in the infrared using a mirror that was much bigger than that used by these other four telescopes. While Spitzer, which operates in the infrared, had a mirror 85 centimeters or 33.5 inches in diameter, Webb has a mirror actually a collection of smaller mirrors acting as one that is more than 6 meters or almost 22 feet across, greatly increasing the resolution available to peer farther back in time than any other telescope, while at the same time collecting much more electromagnetic radiation. This will allow it to probe galaxy formation early in the age of the universe. It will be used for closer objects as well, using its higher resolution and increased electromagnetic radiation collection to get much finer detail than any of those other telescopes. Construction began in 2004. By 2011, all 18 mirror segments were finished, tested, and found to be up to spec for the requirements of the telescope. As pieces and instruments began arriving between 2012 and 2016, rigorous testing was done on all of them, not just to operate as planned once Webb arrived at its final destination, but to survive the launch on an Ariane 5 rocket since the shuttles were no longer available. From 2017 on, the various pieces were put together to create the telescope itself, with final assembly and testing taking place through 2019 to make sure everything would work as intended. This was important because unlike Hubble, Webb was going to be so far from Earth that it would not be possible to surface it if something went wrong. The Webb Space Telescope is 1.5 million kilometers or 1 million miles away compared to the 570 kilometer distance above Earth's surface of Hubble or even the 384,400 kilometer distance to the Moon. Webb is orbiting the Sun while orbiting with the Earth in what is known as Lagrangian Point 2 or L2 for short. 
This is one of five stability points due to gravity between Earth, Sun, and Webb. Time for a little physics sidestep. Joseph Louis Lagrange used Newton's three laws of motion and his law of gravity to come up with a solution for what is known as the three-body problem. It looks at the gravitational interaction of three bodies. From NASA's Solar System Exploration website, we find that in 1772, Lagrange published a paper which found that there were five special points where a small mass can orbit in a constant pattern with two larger masses. The Lagrangian points are positions where the gravitational pull of the two large masses precisely equals the centripetal force required for a small mass to move with them. A centripetal force is one acting on an object that allows it to travel in a circular orbit. The tension in a string that you might use to whirl a ball above your head would be an example of a centripetal force. The Earth's gravitational pull on the Moon keeps it orbiting Earth that is also a centripetal force. Of the five Lagrangian points, three are unstable and two are stable. The unstable Lagrangian points, labeled L1, L2, and L3, lie along a line connecting the two large masses. The stable Lagrangian points, labeled L4 and L5, form the apex of two equilateral triangles that have the large masses as their vertices. L4 is on Earth's orbital path and leads the Earth. L5 is on Earth's orbital path and follows. L2 is ideal for astronomy because a spacecraft is close enough to readily communicate with Earth, can keep Sun, Earth, and Moon behind the spacecraft for solar power and, with appropriate shielding, provides a clear view of deep space for our telescopes. The L1 and L2 points are unstable on a time scale of approximately 23 days which requires satellites orbiting these positions to undergo regular course and attitude corrections. Actually, Webb now orbits that point, so it is on a line from the Sun through the Earth and onto L2, but it is orbiting the L2 point. And it will stay in sync with Earth, so it orbits the Sun in a year with the Earth between it and the Sun. The entire complex was launched on Christmas Day in 2021, and has spent the next month traveling to its final location. Over that time, the mirror complex was unfolded. The mirror was basically folded into thirds to fit in the rocket and had to be unfolded once in space to its final configuration. In addition, the individual mirror cells that will collectively make up the mirror had to be realigned. The secondary and tertiary, or third mirrors, in the light path that bounce the infrared radiation back and forth to reach the scientific instruments also had to be aligned. It reached its final destination on January 25th. For the next five to six months, rigorous scientific and engineering testing will be done to make sure everything survived the launch and is working as planned. Fingers are still crossed for that one. So at present, check boxes have been checked and the astronomical community and those of the public that have followed the development of this telescope all wait with bated breath for the word that the James Webb Space Telescope is ready to go to work. For a time, it will be able to work in conjunction with Hubble and the other operational space telescopes, but its larger collection service will also allow it more detailed imagery, albeit in the infrared and not in the visible. This wavelength band is key to understanding some of the questions we still ask about our universe and what makes it up. 
Who knows what new discoveries this latest extension of human vision will reveal. Hello, this is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science, and I'm continuing my series of interviews with student competition winners from the Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting in November 2021. Today, I'm talking with two of our winners in the engineering section, Tiffany Falch and Alex Villasenor. I'm going to let both of them introduce themselves. They're at Northern Kentucky University. Hi, I'm Tiffany Falch, and I'm a mechatronics engineering technology student. Hello, my name is Alex Villasenor. My major is electrical and electronics engineering technology at NKU. Thank you, Alex and Tiffany, so much for joining us today. I want to just start out by letting you explain what your research question was about. Your presentation was developing a solar panel emulator. For folks who aren't engineers, I would love for you just to describe what is a solar panel emulator and why were you trying to make one? So a solar panel emulator is pretty much a solar panel that we have brought indoors, but without the actual solar panel. So instead, if you think about it, we have a DC power supply versus the sun, and we have rheostat resistors versus regular elements that are outside, such as the temperature and the solar irradiance. So the reason that we wanted to create a solar panel indoors to be able to be used multiple times was because we wanted to be able to recreate the outdoor environment while being indoors at multiple times of the day. Because when you're outside with a solar panel, you're not going to be able to recreate the same exact variances that you have outdoors every single time of the day. So for example, Tuesday at 2 p.m., say it's 75 degrees out. Well, next Tuesday at 2 p.m., it's not going to be 75 degrees out. It may be 10 degrees lower and maybe 10 degrees higher. So we wanted to be able to recreate this emulator indoors to be able to recreate specific times of days where we get certain amount of radiance, certain amount of temperature for other students to be able to use in their own systems. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess there are other people at Northern Kentucky University who are doing research into solar mm -hmm. energy. And so you, this is something that could be useful to other researchers on your team or other colleagues. Yes, for sure. If I remember correctly, we actually have another group that is working on building a wind turbine system that will eventually be integrated with the solar panel emulator system. Excellent. For folks who are listening, I want to encourage you to go to our website to find Tiffany and Alex's presentation. If you go to kyscience.org and follow links for the annual meeting, you'll find the online program and all of our presenters have uploaded their presentations there so that you can go and open that presentation. You can see pictures of some of the materials that Tiffany and Alex have used. And there's a photo in there of what they came up with for the emulator. And then some also some interesting graphs and, and data. So I would encourage people to go there at kyscience.org. I know you all told me that the pandemic affected your research a little bit. And I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that briefly. Yes, the pandemic has affected our research. We have not been able to get as far into what we originally had designed. So the original plan was to have a DC power supply that's programmable connected to a DC power load that's also programmable, which will be interfaced with the LabVIEW software system. So they could all communicate, making a much user-friendly interface system altogether. But because of COVID, the research was actually started back in the spring of 2020, 
which was actually when we all got shut down. So unfortunately, there was a good chunk of time that everything was done online. So it was a lot of finding articles and pulling articles. And when we finally did get to come back part-time to be able to be half on campus and half not, there were specific times that we weren't allowed to be on campus and stuff like that. So those regulations, I want to say, that were put on us kind of also affected us because everything was cut in like half pretty much. So we came up with a simpler solution. We came up with a DC power supply that we already had in our lab system. And we had ordered two rheostat resistors. Those are these giant boxes. They're pretty much rectangular. And then they have a handle at the top that you can slide back and forth to adjust the resistance that they put out. So we ended up using two of those along with a DC power supply. And we was able to recreate the same exact thing that we were trying to do with the programmable system. But instead, this one was a little bit more finicky because if you've ever messed with the rheostat resistors, they are very touchy. Even the slightest movement can send your information from, say you wanted 100 resistance. Yeah, all of a sudden, because a table got bumped, you're at 112 resistance. So even though with that, we were still able to collect data to be able to make the charts that you can see on our presentation. We were also able to still create the LabVIEW system, even though they were not going to be interfaced at that time because that system was too simplified, I want to say, to be able to connect the two, to be able to make them to work together to create that more user-friendly interface. So hopefully with Alex taking over soon, we will be able to create that system where it is user-faced friendly with the LabVIEW software system and the programmable power supply and the programmable loads. That's great that you were able to pivot and respond to those challenges in your research. I think a lot of researchers can probably relate to that in terms of what's you know been happening to us in 2020 and 2021. And it also seems like good experience as an engineer <laughs> to be able to pivot and solve a new problem. So congratulations to both of you in, in being able to do that. I do want to get to hear a little bit more about what's coming next in the research. So Alex, if you're continuing next year, I understand Tiffany's graduating. I wonder Mm -hmm. if you want to share with us a little bit about future directions of this research. Well, as of now, with the solar panel emulator, we have a more sophisticated version, which we have been working on together. And we're still having some trouble getting the lab view and in the actual emulator working together. But last couple of weeks, we've been able to get some results. We're still working on getting the program to be, as Tiffany said, more user-friendly for all the people that wanted to use it, not only for the main department, and we'll see where we can head up with there. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, congratulations again to both of you for winning our research competitions in engineering. If folks want to see all the research winners, they are also on our website, and hopefully we'll be hearing interviews with many of them on Bench Talk, the week in science. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time talking to us today and good luck to you both in your future careers. Thank you. Hello, this is Leslie Moise and I have a story to share. According to a September 21st, 2021 article by A. Abramson in American Psychological Association, there appears to be some beneficial psychological aspects of remote learning for many kindergarten through 12th grade students. First of all, 
School psychologists and counselors have greater ease in scheduling mental health appointments for students online or remotely. These are simpler for the students to receive mental health support. Certain students also find online appointments or virtual appointments less stressful since they can remain in their own familiar environment. This can lead to more open sharing with a therapist or counselor. Secondly, certain students feel more comfort in the time flexibility offered by virtual learning. They can study and learn when they feel sharpest rather than being locked into an in-person class schedule. Next, parents experience a greater connectedness to their child's studies. They understand what the child is studying and why. This leads to parents being better able to work with the school administrators or teachers to help their children learn. This aspect of remote learning was also examined in a 2009 article on parental involvement in middle school in developmental psychology. Perhaps most important of all in my personal experience, virtual learning greatly reduces opportunities for bullying. Bullied children are no longer vulnerable to the taunts or blows bullies make in person. Because of this, schools are investigating ways to better support bullied students when in-person learning resumes. Next, some ADHD and other special learning needs students learn better at home due to fewer distractions. Students with social anxiety also find it easier to concentrate in virtual class situations. People learn in different ways. Certain students learn better and more easily in online virtual school environments, while others perform better under more traditional learning. Many school administrators are trying to incorporate elements from online classes that will help all students have the best possible experience when students return to physical classrooms. And now I have a poem, Remote Learning. He sits at his dining room table, his third grade English sprawled across half the polished surface. The novel face down, his notebook with jotted notes in blue ink. His fingers touch the notebook cover, also blue. He smiles, staring at the big window at the empty yard. Well, empty of other people, other children with their demands, their expectations. A male cardinal curves through the air from the hemlock to the edge of the carport roof. He gasps in delight and then bends patiently back to his book. She sits at the desk in her bedroom, moonlight slanted down to mingle with the golden light from the desk lamp. In the early night, it's easier for her to imagine distant India. In dusk, she can picture the slow flow of the Ganges easier than in the noisy classroom, especially without other students taunting her, distracting her with the pain of a pulled ponytail. The hurtful feet stuck in her way up to the teacher's desk. She turns a page in her geography book. 
takes a deep, full, safe breath. His mother, her father, stops in the dining room door or the bedroom door. Do you need me to email your teacher about anything? Do you have any questions? No, Dad, I'm fine. I'm fine, Mom. Thank you. Today on Bench Talk, the week in science, you've heard from Rob Weber of the Kentucky Academy of Science, then astronomer-physicist J. Scott Miller, and then Amanda Fuller of the Kentucky Academy of Science, who is interviewing Tiffany Falch and Alejandro Villasenor of Northern Kentucky University. And we ended with published author and poet Leslie Moise. Thanks to all these fine folks for contributing to the show this week. And thanks to you for tuning into Bench Talk the Week in Science. I'm Dave Robinson, wishing you health and happiness. See you next week.